How many of you have watched a horror movie this month, or decorated your lawn with skeletons and zombies, or visited a haunted corn maze? October may be the month that our fixation on things ghoulish, grisly, and scary reaches a peak, but for many people, a fascination with the darker side of life isn't limited to Halloween. Some of us love being scared out of our wits all year long. There are a dozen Friday the 13th movies, the Scream franchise released its sixth film this year, and a list of the top 25 podcasts in the U.S. includes shows called Crime Junkie, Morbid, and My Favorite Murder. Clearly, there's a big appetite out there for horror, true crime, and other types of terrifying entertainment. So why is that? Why do we love to scare ourselves silly? Are there certain personality traits that people who are drawn to horror, true crime, and other scary genres share? And are those people onto something? Could watching horror movies be good for our mental health? Can scary entertainment improve our well-being and leave us better equipped to handle real-life challenges? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. My guest today is Dr. Colton Scrivener, a behavioral scientist at the Recreational Fear Lab at Aarhus University in Denmark and a research project manager at Arizona State University. He studies the psychological underpinnings of our fascination with the darker side of life, including horror, true crime, and all types of scary play. He's also interested in how morbid curiosity relates to personality and mental health. Dr. Scrivener has published research on morbid curiosity and scary play in scientific journals, including Psychological Science and Nature Scientific Reports, and has been interviewed by media outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR. He's working on a book about the science morbid curiosity due to be published next year. Dr. Scrivener, thank you for joining me today. I can. Thank you for having me on. So how do you define morbid curiosity? You've developed a scale to measure it. What kinds of things do you ask about? Yeah, that's a, a good question because that was actually the first problem I came across when I started studying it is that there wasn't a great definition of it, or at least there wasn't kind of an agreed upon definition. Uh, so after a bit of research, uh, the, the definition that I landed on was that morbid curiosity is simply a curiosity or an interest in things that are potentially dangerous. So that could be things that are uh, you know, fictionally dangerous that kind of tap into our minds a little bit or things that are actually dangerous, like the things we read on the news or uh, hear about from others. Have you found that most people are at least a little morbidly curious? What, how wide is the range? Yeah, it, I, I think morbid curiosity is sometimes talked about as if it's this fringe uh, trait or a fringe th uh, thing that only some people have. But in all the research I've done, uh, if you give people, for example, the morbid curiosity scale, you find that morbid curiosity is pretty, pretty normally distributed, meaning that most people have a pretty moderate amount of morbid curiosity. Some people have a lot and some people have a little bit. And this has been true not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well, as well including uh, Canada, Brazil, Denmark, and several other countries that uh, have taken this test. Well, let's talk about horror specifically. For people who don't like watching horror movies, and that does not include me, I like a good scary movie, <laughs> it can be hard to understand why so many other people love them. What have you found in your research? Why do people enjoy watching horror flicks? So the traditional answer from psychology about why people have enjoyed 
watching horror films has been that uh, it, simply because they're adrenaline junkies. And one of the first things I looked into was whether or not this assumption was true, because there were kind of a, a few studies in the, the 1980s that looked at this kind of when the slasher genre became popular, people got interested in this question. Uh, you know, the psychological tools that were available, especially in personality science, weren't as robust in the 80s as, and weren't as varied and, and widely distributed in the 80s as they are now. Um, and so what I found is that, yes, there are some people who enjoy horror because they are high in something called sensation seeking. You know, they like the feelings of strong sensations. These are the same kind of people that would go bungee jumping or skydiving or uh, any any number of things like that that kind of give you an adrenaline boost. However, uh, it seems to be actually only a small portion of the horror fan base. Um, so, one of, for example, one of the studies we conducted at Haunted Attraction during Halloween found that even at this high intense uh, situation of scary play like a haunted house, only a small number of people are adrenaline junkies or sensation seekers. And the remainder of them actually are pretty afraid of horror and actually feel genuinely scared when they go through the haunted house. And so, of course, we asked, well, why are they there if they're genuinely afraid and don't necessarily love the adrenaline rush for the adrenaline rush's sake? And what we found were that a lot of people feel as if they learn something about themselves and sort of develop a, a, as a person through these experiences. And so you hear about this in in real tragedies a lot, this kind of post-traumatic growth, or I'm glad I went through this so that I, because I learned something and I grew as a person. And it seems like different kinds of scary plays, such as even just watching a horror movie, or if you're a small child, like playing hide and seek or playing scary imaginative games, um, these can help you kind of feel out the the sort of limits of your fear and what you're able to handle. And they kind of, in many cases, can give you sort of self-confidence that you can overcome things that, that feel scary. But is there a point where fear is no longer healthy? Or do most people who like to watch horror movies know when it might be causing them more stress than enjoyment? It's tricky, I think, to to know. I mean, that's probably true of most things in life, right? It's uh, too much of a good thing is... It's always a bad thing, right? And uh, certainly the same is true of scary play or fear. Um, I do think people have, an, have a good intuition about when enough is enough, right? Like when they're too scared and they, they no longer have a good grip on, uh, like, you know, that the best kind of scary play, you have kind of one foot in reality and one foot in this imaginary world where you're sort of letting things scare you. And when we go through experiences like haunted houses or horror movies or we read a scary book, we kind of toe that line, right? And, and it's we're partly at the whims of the narrator or of the creator of the game. And when things get too scary and we get pushed too much into that imaginary world, we perform certain actions that help draw us back in. So for example, in some of the studies I've done, we found that people will actually suppress their fear if they get too scared. So they'll cover their eyes, they'll imagine that it's not real, they'll sort of avert their attention to something else or cover their ears. They'll do things to kind of dull the sensations. And if they're not scared enough, they'll do things to actually heighten the sensations. Uh, they'll immerse themselves a bit more. They'll, you know, look at the scare actors in a haunted house or they will let themselves scream when they're feeling afraid. And so people do kind of regulate their arousal and regulate their immersion to hit this kind of sweet spot uh, when they're watching horror movies and going through haunted houses and even listening to true crime podcasts. So are you a horror movie fan yourself? I am. I'm probably I'm probably not as uh, as big of a fanatic as people assume I am. I mean, I do love horror movies. I'm a, I am. A, I would consider myself a definitely a horror fan. Um, 
but I kind of fell into this line of research accidentally. It's, uh, you know, it wasn't that I was a, a horror fan and decided I needed to study that. It was more just I was a horror fan and I was interested in these paradoxical things that humans do. And, and one of those things is that we scare ourselves for fun. Do you have a favorite horror movie yourself? And are there horror movies that you would consider more therapeutic than others? Ooh, more therapeutic. I mean, you know, to the extent that uh, a scary story can help you sort of work through things and, and conquer your fears, I think that depends on the person because some people have a, a higher threshold for fear and some people have a lower threshold for fear. So there probably isn't a good sort of single movie out there or single game out there for that. Um, as far as my favorite, I mean, I I really love the um, the Haunting of Hill House, which is actually, I guess, a miniseries, not a not a movie, but it's a really great example of sort of long form scary story and long long form storytelling and horror. Uh, the Autopsy of Jane Doe is another really great one. It after I watched that, I, I real, realized that it incorporated a lot of elements from my work on Morbid Curiosity that. You know, it kind of had these different facets that I'd been studying kind of all smashed into one movie. Um, yeah, probably those two would be my my favorites. Well, let's talk about some other scary genres like true crime podcasts or, or TV shows like you just mentioned. Um, what about these these programs and, and uh, podcasts that are about serial killers? Do people enjoy those for the same reasons or is there something else going on psychologically? I think that they can enjoy them for the same reasons. Uh, you know, true, true crime tends to be a little bit less in your face with the, the violence and gore and horror movies tend to lean into that a little bit more. And so horror movies lend themselves to, you know, adrenaline rushes a bit more easily if, if that's what you're after. Uh, however, I, a lot of people who watch or read or listen to true crime also get very scared from it. Oftentimes after the fact, when they're at home alone later or, uh, you know, when they're thinking about it later. Uh, but I think people do derive a lot of the same pleasures out of it. That is this kind of pleasure of learning about something, right? I mean, learning is intrinsically rewarding. I think there are quite a few studies that have shown that across a variety of different circumstances. Uh, and I think learning about threats is especially rewarding because, you know, your brain sort of feels like it's getting a good deal because you're safe, yet you're learning about something that typically would be very costly to learn about. Um, so if you're listening to a true crime podcast or watching a you know a docu series about a serial killer, your brain's sort of cataloging all of these things about uh, what kind of clues did the police miss or what kind of clues did their friends and family miss, and you're sort of creating this rolodex of behaviors and attitudes and uh, traits that serial killers might have, and that can feel very rewarding. So I want to talk for a little bit about your morbid curiosity test, which is available on the web for anybody who wants to know where they fall on the continuum. And just uh, to uh, out myself here, I came in at 3.96 out of a five, which is a little bit higher than the average, which I think is 3.41. I found it interesting that you included so many questions about things that are really gory, like whether you'd want to watch a head transplant if such a thing were possible, or attend a public execution in the Middle Ages, or watch an autopsy. And it seems to me that there's a really big difference between seeing something gross in a movie or a TV show and seeing it in real life. Is there a strong connection between the two, horror and gore? Because I have to say, it seems to me that it's it's pretty unhealthy to want to watch these gory things. So why do you link the two? Well, I think you could say that about probably a lot of different things that 
depending on your motivations for watching it, right? So if I, um, let's say I enjoy boxing or MMA, millions and millions of people enjoy that and spend a lot of money doing it. Now, if you're watching it because you enjoy watching people get hurt, the intention there is maybe what's unhealthy, whether rather than watching it for entertainment for other reasons. And I think the same thing could be said of sort of gory horror movies um, or sort of more disgust-based uh, horror movies. Some of the things I've been looking into with respect to like, why do people enjoy uh, the gory aspects? Or at least why are those interesting to us, right? Why is that? Sometimes we, we find things interesting, but we don't necessarily enjoy them. Um, and I think with with gore, what it can be is that at least when it comes to my morbid curiosity scale, it seems to be that it's more about learning sort of the limitations of the body and learning about the uh, consequences of interacting with something dangerous. And so you can imagine that if you're watching a horror movie and the protagonist comes across uh, a, de a dead body, I and mean, the dead body has, you know, maybe a small cut on its neck, that doesn't give you a lot of information about the killer, right? It doesn't instill a lot of fear in you because anybody could cut another person's neck. It doesn't require a lot of strength or stealth or anything like that. But if the protagonist is walking along and they come across a body that's, you know, missing, it, missing both of its arms and has its head smashed in, that then causes you to imagine something much more ferocious and terrifying and awful. And so, again, according to some of the studies that, that I've done and others have done, um, gruesome injuries seem to index formidability really well. And so if someone can cause more damage to, to you, they're typically more dangerous, larger, scarier, and more of a threat. And so I think that horror stories often use gore as a kind of index of how terrifying and, and threatening the monster actually is. And so it's kind of a foreshadowing sometimes, or a, um, if you've already seen the monster, it might just be a, a clear example of, of how dangerous the thing you're dealing with is. And so in that way, I think it actually ties into this idea that you're interested in dangerous potential dangers or threats, right? Because the gore indexes uh, how threatening or how dangerous the, the monster might be. So what does it mean if somebody scores a five on your test? Is that <laughs> a sign of possible psychopathy? Uh, I, no, I don't think so. Um <laughs> You know, it's not a, I should say, it's, you know, it's not a clinical test, right? It's not a, it's not meant to diagnose you with anything. Um, there are plenty of people who score fives that are perfectly healthy. And there are plenty of people who score ones who are probably not perfectly healthy. Um, and so I don't think that, at least in the studies that I've done, you know, morbid curiosity does not seem to indicate any kind of um, pathological uh, trait, Right. Like just because you're high or low in morbid curiosity does not seem to correlate strongly with any kind of pathological traits. Then how, how do you suggest other researchers use the scale if not for that? Well, I think it can tell us a lot about why humans do the weird things they do. I think morbid curiosity probably explains a lot of our entertainment choices. I think it explains uh, it potentially could explain a lot of themes and in, in things like religion. You know, if you go through a lot of religions and mythologies, there's a lot of violence and death and scary things that go on. And, and it's kind of a curious thing that in stories where you would imagine people want to have want to escape reality and have this um, purely pleasant uh, experience. And yet there's there are no stories that I can think of, whether they're written or oral or audiovisual, where it's just a happy story. Right. There's always some kind of 
tragedy and often some kind of threat that goes on, right? And that kind of mirrors, I think, the human experience that, you know, life is not this just pure, easy, joyful thing. There are things that we have to overcome. There are challenges. There are threats. And certainly that has been true um, historically, um, more so than it even is now. And so I think stories, you know, do a good job of showing how people can overcome these kinds of scary things. And so the morbid curiosity scale is a great way to capture people's kind of inherent interest in that. Um, and because it seems to be a, a widely distributed trait, um, I think the, you know, there's a, there's a lot of room to better understand what it could lead to and what it, what it's related to, um, what other personality traits or potentially pathological traits, um, or potentially beneficial traits, uh, or beneficial things that could be related to. Let's talk for a minute about kids and fear. You've written that in general, it's good for kids to experience scary play. Why is that? And what's the balance between things that are healthy, scary, and things that are going to give children nightmares for weeks or months? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what, one of the key hallmarks of juvenile mammals broadly is, is play, right? And in, in most cases, juvenile mammals engage in different kinds of rough and tumble or even what you might call scary play. They chase each other. They hide from each other. They explore new terrain that they're unfamiliar with. They, you know, lose their, they, they engage in vestibular play where they sort of lose their sense of, um, of direction or they're going too fast and spinning and, and they can't, uh, walk straight. For example, kids love to spin around and then try to walk, right? Yeah. Why is that fun? Well, it kind of throws you out of your element and it teaches you how to quickly regain composure in the face of something that's uncertain, how to uh, overcome things that seem scary. So if you're out playing and you're climbing a tree and it feels very scary, uh, but your friends maybe are egging you on to keep going higher, or maybe you just want to go higher so you can see what's up there. These kinds of uh, play teach kids how to uh, manage their emotions because you know, if you go through your entire life always avoiding any kind of a negative emotion, you're eventually going to have a negative emotion uh, occur, right? Like something bad will eventually happen. And if you're, if you've never experienced fear before or anxiety before in a safe setting, um, you're going to feel really unprepared for it. And you're going to be really surprised and shocked to not know how to handle those kinds of feelings. And so, you know, these kind of scary play or adventurous play, or risky or thrilling play, there, there's quite a bit of evidence that it's good for kids and can teach them um, emotion regulation, self-competence, uh, and just kind of help them grow as, you know, young learners that, that the kids that kids are. Now, there's a stereotype that horror fans must be cold-hearted and lack empathy. But you've done some research that's contradicted that. Can you talk about it? What did you find? Yeah, this is this is another one of those things that came out of a handful of studies in the 1980s uh, in psychology journals showing that, well, horror fans are just these adrenaline junkies with with no empathy. And, you know, being a horror fan myself and, and knowing lots of horror fans and having gone to various conventions and haunted houses and things, it certainly didn't ring true with my intuition and with my experience, right? Uh, which is not a good place to build scientific data, but is a good place to build hypotheses. And um, so I... I decided to look into this a little more and I've conducted some studies recently looking at, uh, like you mentioned, cold heartedness, which is kind of, you can think of it as, uh, the opposite of compassion, right? You just have no care for another person's well-being. Um, 
And what I found is that people who are morbidly curious and people who enjoy horror movies tend to actually be lower in cold heartedness than those who don't enjoy them. Uh, so that is, they have greater compassion. Um, and with respect to empathy, which is a slightly different measure, but a bit similar and complementary in some ways, uh, I just have a, pa- I have a paper right now that's uh, soon to be published in Journal of Media Psychology. And it's kind of a multi-study paper showing that that horror fans actually don't have any different levels of empathy, whether it's affective or cognitive, um, than anyone else who doesn't enjoy horror. Um, and so part of the reason this might deviate from, from past studies uh, is that in, in those studies in the 80s, they would often, you know, the stimuli would be, for example, uh, just a murder scene from a horror movie. So you just show someone a two to three minute clip of the killer killing someone and ask the, ask the participant how much they enjoyed it. Well, if you take that as a measure of how much you enjoy horror movies, you probably are going to find that people who are low in empathy enjoy it more, right? It would be like if I showed someone just a breakup scene from a rom-com and I asked them, how much did you enjoy this? And I take that answer to be how much people enjoy rom-coms. It's probably not going to tell me much about how much people enjoy rom-coms, or certainly it's not going to tell me much about the fans of romantic comedies. But it might tell me something about sadists, right? It's going to tell me something about people who enjoy watching others in pain, and so I think part of what happened was that the stimuli were just a little bit, um, they weren't operationalized very well, you know, because people had this assumption that you must enjoy horror movies for the violence specifically and for the harm to others. And so they took that, they took the stimuli that matched that and it sort of confirmed their own bias in some ways. Um, but it turns out, you know, if you show people full length movies or if you take different measures, like how many horror movies they've seen um, you get different answers on whether or not they are uh, very empathetic. Are there other personality traits or characteristics that morbid, morbidly curious people tend to share? Like, have you looked at mm. the big five, for example? Yeah, it's actually not that strongly correlated with the big five, which is another reason I think it's import, an important measure to kind of look at in the future, because the big five does capture a wide range of variants in, in, in a lot of different life circumstances, Um and, and other individual differences. It, and it varies a bit from population to population and different ages, it varies a bit. But in general, um, it's somewhat associated with higher openness from time to time. So for example, people who enjoy horror movies tend to be a little bit higher in openness, sometimes also higher in neuroticism. Um, so they're a bit more anxious, maybe experience negative feelings a bit more. Um, one of the traits that is commonly associated with is rebelliousness, which is maybe not surprising because it also tends to be um, younger people who enjoy horror movies and younger people tend to be more rebellious. So there's probably some uh, collinearity going on there. Um, Some other traits, you would think that it would be associated with low disgust, but actually morbid curiosity is not that strongly correlated with low disgust. Um, And it could be because, again, disgust is one of those traits where it's difficult to operationalize. You know, there's disgust from bodily injuries, which is something that morbidly curious people would certainly be low in. But then there's disgust from other kinds of things that have nothing to do with threats. Uh, and those are much less associated with how morbidly curious you are. Is there a connection between morbid curiosity and our dream life? Like, do people who are morbidly curious tend to have more nightmares or scary dreams than other people? Uh, I would love to conduct that study. So if anyone <laughs> listening would love to do it, um, I, I would love to know. I, I've had this idea that maybe, and this is, you know, uh, hypothesis, speculation, 
Um, but I've written about it a little bit. This this idea that uh, nightmares might be sort of the original form of morbid curiosity, right? And there's a great uh, there's a great program of study by this uh, I believe he's Finnish um, philosopher and cognitive neuroscientist. His last name's Ravanswo. I think his name is Antti Ravanswo. And he's come up with this idea that, you know, if you think of dreaming, you, you you have to imagine like, well, why did that evolve, right? Why why do humans have, and potentially other, other animals, have this ability to dream? Because, you know, there, there's some speculation that, well, maybe it's just random firing in your, you know, the neurons in your brain. But if you think about it, I mean, dreams are sort of directed in some way. You know, they're they're weird, but they they do have some kind of story to them. They do have, you know, the visuals are often vivid. They they might be a bit fantasy oriented, but they are they do seem real, right? And so that suggests some kind of order and some kind of directedness to it. And so his idea is that, well, maybe dreaming is a way to rehearse things that happen in the real world while you're, you know, you spend eight hours a night, you know, ideally uh, a third of your life sleeping, right? And that's a lot of time lost when you could be gathering resources or finding mates or, uh, you know, doing things that help you in the waking world. And so his idea was that, well, maybe dreaming is a way to kind of capitalize on this, this downtime, and it's a way to simulate potential experiences. And if so, then it would be really, really adaptive to be able to simulate threats. And again, for the same reason that it might be useful to engage in scary play, it could be useful to simulate these kinds of threats in your dreams and then practice or rehearse your responses to them. Um, there's, there's some evidence that, for example, during COVID, the early months of COVID-19, um, people were having more nightmares, certainly more pandemic related dreams. So they were kind of dreaming about this new threat, right? They were kind of dreaming about potential problems that they might be facing. And so it's possible that, uh, you know, dreaming or nightmares are kind of their, a very early form of, of morbid curiosity in humans and potentially in other animals. Speaking of the pandemic-related movies that we've seen over the last few years, for some people, they feel that they're too soon or too close to home. Why is it that some people find them therapeutic while others are not ready to relive it in the form of entertainment? Yeah. That's a a tough question to answer. Um, Again, one of those areas that is so ready for people to dive in. Unfortunately, I only have so much bandwidth. <laughs> and so I've only, <laughs> I've conducted a few studies on this. Um, but uh, as far as why some people find it useful or therapeutic and others don't, I think that's a huge question that should be answered because if we could figure that out, I mean, we might open up new avenues for, for therapy, for things, for, for anxiety or for difficult life circumstances or PTSD. Um, there's pretty good now, I think, empirical evidence even that some people do use uh, fictional scary events or scary play to, to help them deal with real scary events. Um, and it's not clear to me or I think anyone else yet uh, why this works for some people or in some circumstances and, and maybe not for others or in other circumstances. So I think that's probably, the, in my opinion, the, the area of research around morbid curiosity that's most ripe most ready for research and has the potential to impact people's lives the most. So you mentioned that you are a horror fan or are you a Halloween aficionado as well? I am a Halloween aficionado. In fact, I, uh, the town that I live in, uh, has a, it's a kind of a tourist town and it, 
has a lot has lots of events throughout the year but the biggest event of the year is their halloween parade or their halloween event and uh it's a it's actually a zombie crawl and i'm the the organizer of it so i organized this huge uh this is in denmark no this this is in this is in the ozarks this is in eureka springs arkansas oh okay and yeah it's called the eureka springs zombie crawl and uh it's a day-long event where people come and there's spooky music and spooky vendors and dancing and everybody is dressed up as zombies of some kind (laughs) Uh, and right around dusk we have a big huge you know thousands of people engage in this zombie crawl where they crawl through the streets and people have their apocalyptic cars driving through the streets (laughs) Um, and it's kind of this way to uh, embrace, you know, these scary things and and play with them in a in a safe way. It's a it's a kid friendly event. Kids come and um, I get a lot of questions like, you know, will my kid be scared? And I mean, the real answer to that is I don't know, right? Um, but I can say that a lot of kids do come, and and it helps when children see, you know, the monster transforming. If you watch them putting on makeup, it helps them understand that this is just play. Right. It's like a dog wagging its tail to another dog. It's kind of a signal that we're just engaging in play. Um, And so that does help children, I think, kind of overcome their immediate first response to this person walking around with flesh falling off of their face. You know, it's a (laughs) it's a way for them to understand that uh, not everything is always as it seems. So any big questions that you still want to answer research wise? Oh, so many. I mean, you know, when I when I first started, so I I graduated with my PhD just in 2022. And when I first started doing work on morbid curiosity during my PhD, nobody was doing that. I mean, nobody was was publishing on it. There was no operational definition of it. I mean, it was like this untouched thing in science, which was weird to me because it was something that every person I talked to. Uh, understood when I told them I was studying that they they understood some sense of what that meant and they had their own examples of this in their life or their friends that were morbidly curious but they weren't I mean everybody had this sense of of this being something that existed in the world and yet at least psychological science had not really touched it much um now that I'm a few years out of that and I've been publishing on it for four or five years um I get emails you know weekly of, of students who are doing their master's thesis on it now or other people who I'm collaborating with. And so I think in the next like five to 10 years, there's going to be a huge boon in research on this because everybody's kind of doing that research right now. I think in part because the pandemic, for example, I think woke a lot of people up to this idea that, you know, real disasters can happen, not just to anyone, but to me, right? Like this, these scary apocalyptic, almost like things can happen, not just in the movies, but in the real world. And uh, I think it's woken people up to this idea that, you know, maybe being curious about these kinds of things and being interested in them in them is uh, not necessarily such a bad thing. I, I think as far as, you know, the most pertinent questions or the most interesting questions, I mean, I think certainly the one that I had mentioned uh, earlier in our chat about um, who who seems to benefit from this and and why and in, under what circumstances, I think that has the most potential for um, therapeutic context and, and the most potential to impact people's lives. Um, that would probably be the the area that I think, you know, I, I would hope that a lot of, you know, clinicians and people like that would um, would take seriously and, and do some studies on. Well, Dr. Scrivener, I want to thank you for joining me today. It was really interesting chatting with you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. 
You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Condian. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.